Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What happens next in Russia? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Marco Papik, Chief Strategist at Clock Tower Group. Hi, Marco. It's great to see you. So great to be with you, Maggie. Uh, and we, we've been looking forward to talking to you all day because I think all of us, I mean, what happens in Russia next? It's a million dollar question. Uh, but that the weekend developments were surprising. They were bizarre. They were confusing. I mean, everyone's just trying to really sort out what this means. And we saw the market action pretty muted today because I think it's such a hard one to unravel. So, you know, just broadly, give us your sense of the events that occurred over the weekend. What do you make of this? Just a million dollar question? I mean, Maggie, like, what <laughs> about the billion, multi-billion. <laughs> it's like you haven't been here for the inflation. Yeah, billion, trillion, you know, you don't, you don't know. I mean, look, um, I think I'm not surprised by market reaction because ultimately the coup failed for the time being. Uh, there's a lot of focus on uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin and Wagner Group and the particularities of where he is, his whereabouts. Um, you know, where does Wagner go from here? I think largely those are important questions for the tactical traders, for the short-term investors. Uh, Longer-term questions are unanswered, but the market can't process those. You know, so the market is focusing on issues that are much more relevant in the short term, the Fed, Chinese stimulus, which is a big one if you want to take a position in commodities. Uh, to me, the short-term questions are not interesting, you know, because we just don't know. I mean, I, I can't really add any value to you by trying to tell you where we go in the next weeks or even months. To me, the bigger issue is that Russia has been in a state of political crisis for probably six months. It outsourced law enforcement and strategic military operations to private companies, uh, including some regional warlords. I mean, it's time that we start using the term warlords, such as uh, Chechen President Kadyrov. And that's not normal. You know, it's not normal for a large, great power to outsource parts of its military chain of command uh, to non-government entities and officials. And so this mutiny is simply a symptom of a chronic illness. It's not an acute event. It's a chronic illness that will continue to ail Russia. That's a really important point, Marco, I, I think for a couple of reasons, because I think because of the unusual nature and the character that is Prigozhin, that former chef, now he's running this sort of army there there is a lot of attention on that but but what you're saying even if something happened to him tomorrow nothing changes you see this as the unraveling of of putin's grip on power of russian stability how are you seeing this you know i mean putin could stay in power for a very long time um but in power of what uh, the russian state could very well be shrinking before our own eyes with other actors filling in the void, filling in the vacuum. For example, Chechen leader Kadyrov refused to allow his, um, you know, citizens of Chechnya to be mobilized. The argument being that he has special forces, you know, in theater of war, and it's a fair argument, but there you go. Um, it's little pockets of resistance to the writ of Moscow. 
And so I think that fundamentally, the conflict in Ukraine has been a serious strain on Russia. Um, depending on whose propaganda you accept, you know, Russia has lost somewhere between 50 and 200,000 troops. It's a pretty wide margin of error. But let's take the 50. You know, um, during the conflicts in Afghanistan and over a decade in Chechnya, so basically two and a half decades worth of war, Russia lost somewhere between 25,000 and 75,000 men in both conflicts over 25 years of conflict. In just 18 months of war, even Russian commentators basically argued they've lost the same amount. Now, you know, Ukrainian and American uh, media sources elevate that to 200,000. I don't want to get into the numbers. The point is, this is an extraordinary amount of material losses to a country like Russia that clearly did not expect this to happen. Now, in the initial wave of the invasion, I did not forecast correctly that Russia would undertake as broad of an invasion as it did. You know, I was in the camp of folks who thought that they were bluffing like they did in April of 2021, um, or that it would be a limited incursion into Donbass. So, you know, your viewers are very right to ask, why is this guy on TV then? You know, appropriate question. But one of the reasons that some analysts such as myself had doubts about Putin's commitment to a broad invasion was that, you know, there's consequences yeah. to doing that. And we're now seeing those consequences. So I'm not surprised at all uh, that there are these breaks in the regime. And I think that destabilization of Russia may very well be the biggest geopolitical issue we're dealing with for the rest of this decade. I mean, it could be that relevant. More than China-US tensions, more than any other issue that is out there, this could really drive markets and asset returns over the next five to 10 years. That's a big statement. Why do you think that? So, first of all, let's let's think about the context, Maggie, that we're in. Everyone's decided, and by everyone, I mean the policymakers in almost every country have decided that they need to redesign supply chains away from China. So that's like a priority number one. There's this national security prerogative to redesign supply chains. I mean, China itself is doing it as well. So that's Priority number one. Priority number two is apparently to um, sink a lot of capital into the green energy revolution. These two policy priorities are combining to create a very capex-driven cycle. Okay, what does this have to do with Russia? Well, what do you need to do if you want to redesign supply chains and do a green energy transition? What do you need? What is the fundamental need you need? What is the fundamental asset? You need commodities, a lot of them. And not just energy, you need metals. So we're basically redoing the 2001 to 2007 cycle uh, for policy and political reasons and ideological reasons as well. You know, basically the West has decided China's evil now and that everyone's going to be cooked alive by climate change. Those are two priorities. So if you suddenly have political risk in Russia, and it doesn't have to be something extreme, it doesn't have to be like Mel Gibson roaming the highways of Russia in a Mad Max scenario. It doesn't have to be apocalypse or warlordism. It could simply be a reversion to sort of the instability of the 1990s. It's highly unlikely that Russia will receive the sufficient capital, uh, sorry, sufficient financial and human capital to extract the supply of commodities that we're mm -hmm. going to need for these priorities we all decided are really critical. And so that's why I think that, you know, if you have a view of, 
demand for commodities for energy over the next five years, and you suddenly have to change the map on how much Russia can contribute to that demand, you know, we're clearly going to be in a very, um, very volatile and quite bullish environment for commodities. So this is hugely important because if you listen to the rhetoric, and this was obviously all over the news, all over every talk show, every market show, you know, through the weekend into this morning, the the conversation is, will this speed up the end to the war in Ukraine? Mm. Um, what do, And will this, is this the beginning of the end for Putin? But you get the sense that both of those scenarios um, I don't want to say they're positives, but they're, you know, people are looking for a positive outcome to what has been a very uh, dislocating event, this war, ground war in the middle of Europe. And there's some, I think, hope attached to that, um, that, that we're going to be able to resolve this. You're painting a very different picture of that outcome, and I think a very important one, that well, this is the beginning of an even bigger source of instability as if the war in ukraine wasn't enough of a problem this kind of like pulls the whole question of russia for the next decade into it yeah i mean <clears throat> and i you know being that i'm a geopolitical strategist with a sole intention of predicting the markets i didn't mention the obvious concern that should have been number one which is that you are talking about a country that has the largest arsenal of nuclear warheads in the exactly. world exactly that was my next question. You know, I'm, I'm talking about like, oh, well, you can make money on oil. You're like, okay. If you live there to are, tell the tale. Yeah. yeah, there are other bigger, uh, there are bigger issues at hand. One thing I will say to you, Maggie, is this. I actually have a pretty sanguine view of where the war in Ukraine goes. I think that it is in a stalemate. And I don't think the Ukrainian offensive will be successful. Now, the Wagner Rebellion creates this um, sort of probability, an offshoot a branch in your decision tree where the Wagner Rebellion could have such an impactful, um, you know, in, like such a great impact on Russian esprit de corps, its morale of its troops, that you could have a non-linear event where the Ukrainian offensive is suddenly extraordinarily successful because mm -hmm. the Russians turn around and just flee. I don't, I'm not in that camp, so I don't think that happens. I think that there's a reason the war has ossified. And it's been basically in a stalemate for the past six to eight months. Now, what's important about that is that the market agrees with me 100%. I mean, 100%. Every single piece of geopolitical risk premium has dissipated. There is no longer any geopolitical alpha to harvest in Ukraine. Bonds sold off, honestly, at the beginning of the war. The bond market ignored all the silly nuclear weapon threatening that people obsessed about. Oil sold off in the summer of 2022 because there was no impact on supply. And finally, Europe rallied hard when everyone was worrying about Europe deindustrializing, which is probably one of the most idiotic market narratives of the past 20 years. Europe rallied because that risk also dissipated. Now, I'm very happy about this because those were the three forecasts I got right. In other words, I faded geopolitical risk every time it increased with this war. The problem is that we are now at a point where that's done. So the risks are skewed to the downside. In other words, there's two scenarios that I can see happening, which, 
again, I wouldn't assign over 50% probability to, but I do worry about them. One is that there is an impact in Russian morale. Ukrainians do have a non-linear success story, which surprises everyone. And they start to threaten Crimea. Now, from a sort of a political objective viewpoint, most viewers who are in the West will probably cheer that up. But the problem for the markets is that I do think that if Crimea is actually threatened, Russians may deploy tactical nuclear weapons. At that point, they feel that is their territory. That is Russia. That is part of core Russia. It's not conquered Russia. It is Russia. So that is an outcome where the Ukrainian successful offensive becomes negative for the markets. Mm. And then there's another uh, scenario where, as you pointed out, you know, the dissolution of the Putin regime happens much faster than anyone, including myself who 12 months ago said this would be the inevitable like, end result of this conflict, but it just happens much faster. That also then brings into question a lot of things. So the market is not prepared for those tail risks, even though I don't think it happened, even though I don't think they happened, and I think <clears throat> market reaction this Monday was appropriate. Mm. I do worry about those tail risks. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So it's interesting the 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 second point about them it, it falling quicker than anyone thought or or in a in a really disorderly way. When you were looking at this and looking at history and saying, okay, this invasion such a blunder, it's going to cost Putin and it's going to lead to his demise. He's it's it's just n- sort of not winnable. It's going to co- it's going to come at too much of a cost. What kind of transition? power transition did you think was most probable? Did you think another hardliner would take over? He would be overthrown by someone in the military, by that he would have a chosen successor and he'd be allowed to leave with his hidden bajillions someplace and go into... Uh, how did you see it playing out? Because this weekend, those tanks rolling toward Moscow created a very different, very you know, a, a scenario no one had envisioned, you know, that this sort of mercenary was suddenly in in the, and who else would that inspire if he has been contracting out to or, all these warlords? So what, what was the most probable and what do you think is still the most probable in terms of Putin being out of power? I mean, I don't, I don't think it matters what I thought 18 months ago, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> let, let's talk about now. Uh, first of all, uh, there's this uh, cute narrative out there um, on some social media and some, some people talking about this was staged. You know, this might have been, th- this works in favor of President Putin. I, I think that's silly. Anyone who's, you don't have to be uh, an expert of Russian history. Just please tell me you watch Game of Thrones or at least The Sopranos. You know, <laughs> I mean, 
you don't let somebody rise up and then don't kill them and their troops in an orgy of violence and live to survive Russia. Weak czars don't last in Russia. And, you know, even Putin apologists that I've been talking to for the past 18 months, Russians or people from Eastern Europe who support Russia, have basically been sort of aghast about what just happened because it shows real weakness mm-hmm. in that region. In the, in the context of Eastern Europe and Russia, um, you know, I, I had a chance um, to talk to Chinese policymakers, people onshore in China. They all are shaking their head and saying like, wow, this was a, this was a mistake by Vladimir Putin because Chinese history, of course, is replete with examples of warlordism and regional warlords, you know, taking a swing at the emperor, the emperor not swinging back hard enough, and then that incentivizing other potential attempts at taking out the king. So again, you don't have absolutely. to know anything about yeah, you know, absolutely. you don't have to know anything about Russian history. So to answer your question, I have no idea what it looks like, but I think the Khrushchev outcome, the sort of nice negotiated exit, by the way, Putin himself was such an exit for the Yeltsin and Yeltsin family. That was a coup, I would argue. It was a palace coup where Yeltsin and his family were given guarantees to step aside aside peacefully. I think that that outcome is becoming less and less likely the longer the conflict goes on. Mm. And so while Prigozhin did not feel confident that he could pursue this to its end, I think somebody else might. One thing I do want to say is that there is no doubt that this is a significant event. You know, if, if you if you are a geopolitical strategist and you spent the weekend not following this, I don't know what business you're in. This is a nuclear power. And they were using excavators to dig up highways on the approach to Moscow. Let me say that again. The Russian leadership sent construction crews to dig holes into the highway so that Wagner's 25,000 troops couldn't come to Moscow. Imagine if like I-5 or whatever highway, <laughs> you know, was being dug up by American troops so that some horde of murderous mercenary doesn't show up in Washington, D.C. This is a significant event. And there's no way to really spin this as as positive for the leadership. So the commodity story that you see playing out, are we in a holding pattern now? And, you know, the market's not really reacting. When does that start to sink in? that this is going to be, we're going to see disruptions in the commodity flow coming from Russia. And is that a given? Is there any any scenario where someone steps in, given the economy is in shambles, um, so many people have fled. I mean, we know there's been a huge exodus of young people, of workers. Um, any Anybody on the scene at all? I know most of the opposition are jailed or dead uh, or silenced. Um, any any Buddy, but a hardliner who would come in and, and maybe try to turn this around somehow. Well, obviously, the West would hope that some NGO leader steps in because the president of Russia. That's not going to happen in Russia. It's no. going to be a Siloviki, uh, a man of, of, of force, and almost certainly a man, almost certainly a tough ex intelligence person. So I wouldn't like that's that's just obvious. But I don't think that's a problem for the West. I mean, regime change in Russia usually is accompanied with a 180-degree turn in foreign policy. And someone like Prigozhin, although he won't be 
you know, favored on social media. He is someone who will basically go to the embassy, to Chinese embassy and then the American embassy and say, hey, I want your highest bid. So this will create an opportunity, obviously, for the West. We all understand that. Um, but going back to your question about commodity disruption, look, the market was very muted on Monday because timeframes are so uncertain, Maggie. You know, we, we could have an outcome here in the next three weeks, unlikely. I'm thinking more on multi-year time horizons. And so that's why the markets are muted because it's, it's very unclear. I think that what matters more for oil prices, as I said earlier, is how significant is that Chinese stimulus? That's something to really watch right now. That's probably going to move the markets more than anything going on in Russia. And then also, to what extent have the forecasts of the recession in the U.S. been extremely wrong? In fact, the one call on oil markets here was to shorten. As I said, in May and June of last year, in June in particular, oil prices collapsed because investors had bid up too much and too fast expectations of supply loss out of Russia, which didn't happen. In fact, we got the same amount of oil at decreased prices, which was shocking to many investors. I think going forward, this stabilization of Russia is a longer term story, mm -hmm. and it fits into the pillars of a commodity super cycle that themselves are a longer story, a story which will have ups and downs cyclically and tactically. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Which is important. So, so plug China into the into this puzzle. They're looking at this, um, and they've sort of you know given tacit approval to Putin. You know, it's been a kind of weird relationship. What happens now with that, and and how is this? factoring into China's own decision about what they're doing with their economy and, and their focus on making sure they have access to commodities? So, you know, I think, uh, first of all, we at Clock Tower Group, we, we have an office in Shanghai because we believe that getting China right is really important for investors and not because you need to invest in China. But if you're going to make a call in Europe or Japan or copper or oil, you have to know what's going on in China. And so over the weekend, as I said earlier, you know, we've had conversations with a lot of people in China, whether they're geopolitical uh, strategists themselves, policymakers, onshore investors. And there is a universal reaction that this is not good for Putin's regime. Um, the official statements were very interesting. They didn't mention Putin by name. China just reiterated its support for stability in Russia, which is, you know, sounds like a hedge to me in case somebody else is in charge. Um, and so I think the Chinese policymakers are definitely concerned, but they're also preparing themselves for their horse to lose. Uh, I think they have to start thinking about that. Over the, over the short term, their calculus, though, is going to be focused on their own domestic problems, and their number one problem is leverage in the system. I keep telling our clients, look, China is where America was in 2011, 2012. And they're going to go through a sequence of events in the next six to 12 months where they use interest rate cuts, QE, and then fiscal. They're going to do that sequence that we did in our secular stagnation story. Um, I think that they're so concerned about that domestic issue that they're not going to do anything with Russia. But one thing that I do think is the odds of invading Taiwan have been sinking since, since February 24, 2022. 
There is absolutely nothing that's happened in the last 18 months that would incentivize, I think, any country right now to contemplate uh, something that Russia has done. Do you think that the, that China can manage this uh, this economic challenge? Because if they are trying to support their economy, isn't the worry that they reinflate that property bubble that they've been trying so hard to orderly deflate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't think they really have any other options. Uh, what's happening in China right now is real interest rates have increased. Uh, the PBOC is behind the curve. I mean, first of all, CPI is like inflation is non-existent. Producer price inflation is outright in a deflation. So producers' prices are deflating. When you have deflation, real interest rates go up, and that's extremely pernicious because the country is over leveraged. So they need to step in. The central government has to take that private sector leverage on its own balance sheet through fiscal expenditures. And, you know, like that's where they're going to be pushed into. Is it going to reflate the real estate bubble? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure to what extent the households, even if they get relief, are willing to buy their fourth and fifth condo. You know, so I think that that train may has very well passed. But this is a very serious problem for, for China. And I think it completely dominates their policymaker bandwidth, if you will. Um, you know, these kind of adventures with Russia or, or Taiwan, they are really more of a luxury. Right now, avoiding secular stagnation and balance sheet recession, the kind of things that the US had to deal with in 2011 to 2020, mm -hmm. That's where China is right now, and so I think I don't think you're going to see them triple down on Russia or in any in any significant way. Um, in fact, I think that there could be an interesting entry point into Chinese assets over the next six months as they get pushed ever further into more and more stimulus. Yeah, which is which people have been waiting for, but it kind of hasn't been coming in the way they expected. Any strength in the reopening was disappointing, so there's been some disappointment on that front, hasn't there? But think about, Maggie, how long it took the U.S. to actually do stimulus or the West. Yeah. Think about it for a second. You might say, well, Marco, no, 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 QE happened right away. Ah, but what did we find out about QE and interest rate cuts that we were pushing on a string? Why? Because private sector was deleveraging. And what happened in the West, let's not forget what happened in the West. We had austerity fetish in the U.S. and Europe, which hurt deleveraging because of the denominator effect. So basically, you, the public sector didn't step up and take on some of that leverage from the private sector. It took us until 2017 in the U.S. to actually have stimulus, um, a little bit later even for Europe. And the two catalysts for breaking that were the election of President Trump and Brexit, you know, the two kind of populist moments that actually finally shut the door on austerity. I don't think you're going to have to wait six years in China. And so when people say, well, their, their stimulus efforts have been delayed, I tell them, well, yeah, but like it's not six years, it's been months. And I think that China doesn't have the political luxury to wait around for their version of a Trump or a Brexit. They're going to have to be pushed into this uh, you know, fiscal um, avenue much faster than we did. They don't want to wait around, presumably, for their populist moment. That that cannot be part of the plan of sheet. So, so exactly. a quick question on China, and then I and I and then I want to end on Europe. So, uh, any do you, given the economic focus and challenges, 
um, any sign of easing tensions between China and the U.S., every time they try to set that up, somebody opens their mouth and, and it seems like uh, that doesn't happen. Well, I think it's, um, it's not up to China. You know, that's what I would say. So if you're an investor waiting for that, you know, you have to watch American domestic politics. Mm. And it's just not like the U.S. election is coming around the corner. I don't see any benefit for President Biden to appear to want to do detente with China. So I'm skeptical. Or, or any candidate for that reason. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm pointing him out. By yeah. But you know what? The irony of this is that if the Republicans win, including Trump, I think the odds of detente actually rise because domestically, Trump is far less constrained in talking to China. That's the irony. You know, there used to be that adage, only Nixon could go to China. Yeah. And then Trump updated that adage with only Trump could call Kim Jong-un a very smart young man. You know, so this is, this is where a Republican leadership in the, in the U.S., ironically and paradoxically, could actually negotiate with China uh, much easier because of domestic pressures. Uh, so, but I wouldn't expect that anytime soon. Yeah, until until after, uh, you know, the uh, and, and a lot can happen between now and that election. Um, so if we go back to Europe, we're facing a, a, maybe a sort of status quo with Ukraine or, you know, it's sort of stuck, even if it doesn't get any worse. Maybe they make a little bit more progress, but potentially any good news on that offset by a further destabilization, destabilization in Russia what does that mean for Europe? What does it mean for the UK? We see the central banks hiking. You know, we're soon summer's going to be over and we're going to be facing winter again. What's the outlook for, for that region? I have no idea what it means for the UK. And honestly, we could have 30 minutes just on the Oh, mess. I know. With the mortgage reset. Yeah, we, we talked about that a bit. And that surprise BOE hike, that was kind of extraordinary. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, the irony and the paradox here is that the better Ukrainian offensive goes, the more likely a Russian reaction is pretty severe and there's more destabilization in Russia, which I'm not, I'm not sure is good for European equities. And so again, that's where, if you look at the geopolitical risk premium, the play in 2022 was to fade it, was to ignore all the Twitterati and fade nuclear war, European disaster scenarios. And so to go long Europe, the problem right now is that even if I'm sanguine, that trade is gone. And so there's only downside risk to Europe from here. And so that's why it's very difficult for me to give you a view of how to play this in, in by going along something. Whereas it may be prudent to kind of put on some shorts on European assets, given that the downside risk scenario, even though I don't think probability is greater than 10 or 15%, that's where the juice is because the market has moved too far into the sanguine line. So what I worry about, if I want to hold European assets, what if, what if Ukraine surprises, right? And it does extremely well in this offensive. Everyone's going to be happy and cheer, and it's going to be a great moment, objectively speaking, for Ukraine. But if Russian retaliation then is severe, that could rattle European markets. And so I think that would be a downside a lot of people are not considering. And, and one quick question from Ralph, uh, any opinion on the direction of wheat? We're talking about commodities, potential super cycle for commodities. I'm assuming that a lot of that was centered on energy. Are, do you include food in that, Marco, when you look at this, uh, the, the disruptions? And could we see, because we've seen wheat, it's been up a lot this month. 
Yeah, no, I think wheat is uh, is basically sensing that there could be a geopolitical break on the deal. Uh, and I, I think that's that's a very appropriate way of that geopolitical risk premium kind of creeping up into some of the old markets. Now, remember, oil was another one that rallied in February, obviously in April, ended up being a great short. But I do think the macro setup is starting to look better for oil. I was never in the recession camp in the US for 2023. I didn't have to change my forecast like every other investment bank, but you know. Um, and I am positive Chinese policymakers will get pushed on stimulus. So if you have a no recession view in the US, Chinese policymakers reach their breaking point and stimulate. And on top of that, you have you know situation in Russia and Ukraine um, looking more complicated. That's all you need. I think that could be an interesting setup for energy as well as soft. Marco, we could not have had a better person on today to help us sort of understand what's happening, but importantly, focus on on the sort of bigger themes that are likely to drive things and, and sort of, you know, understand what we need to about the shorter headlines that are catching everyone's attention. You really helped us focus on the important elements. So we thank you for that. Well, thank you for the time. It's a real pleasure, Maggie. I love it. Take good care of yourself. Thanks so much. Thanks to all of you. We'll be back same time tomorrow. As always, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.